And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Before I dig into the Q&As uh, for this podcast, I, I just want to share a, a, a couple of things that uh, I'm working on and some responses that are uh, extremely encouraging. Uh, the first is, uh, as most of you know, I've been teaching and sponsoring a a class on investing at Western Washington University. I am not the professor who teaches it, but they kindly allow me to go teach a two-hour piece each quarter. And I just did that this week. And uh, I got to say, it is inspiring to realize that uh, I've got this opportunity to convince these young people how very important it is to up their game on saving and how important it is uh, to make the right decision about how they place their investments for the long term. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that uh, while the, the class has been full Every quarter since it first started to be offered in 2013, and it is taught quarterly except for summer, and it is also taught, by the way, online. So uh, while I think they got 44 uh, students in the uh, the class this quarter, there were another 21 uh, online. Now, that's good. But that's a campus, I think, of about 15,000 students. And so my concern is, what about the other 14,940 people? So I've got good news in that regard. Uh, I think there is a consensus among the, the at least the the profs that I've had the chance to speak with and the students that I've had a chance to speak with, and the administration. I had a wonderful meeting with the president of Western, and I think there will be in the coming year, might take a little longer, but there will be a Merriman, might not have the name Merriman there, but I know that I'll be working hard to support this effort Merriman Center for Financial Education built to help every student that comes through Western. Now, obviously, we have to motivate them to want to know this information, but I'll be doing all that I can, uh, and, and it's just very exciting to know that I don't have to fight many battles to be able to have this opportunity. And also this week, we're starting to get more feedback about the new target date portfolios that we've put up at Motif, and we've shown people how to build them uh, on their own uh, through the Merriman site if they don't want to use Motif. But I I got a message uh, at Motif from one of the investors who knows about these new target date portfolios And I love this response. He says, I'm sharing the information about the new target date portfolios with just about every person I know and on every platform I have access to. 
after hearing the details and the long-term plan for them on your podcast this past week, I am certain that these new motifs are by far the most exciting thing happening in the buy-and-hold space I have ever seen. Thank you so much for your dedication to making this happen. You are going to change lives. And I think that most of you know that I am dedicated to changing lives. And I, I got to tell you, I, I really believe it when I say this is an approach to investing that will be commonplace in, an, in less than a decade, that investors who are investing for the long run will be able to make the choice between conservative and moderate and aggressive ways to invest for the long term. And, uh, and I think we're kind of cutting edge in this regard. So now to the questions. Um, and I've got a number of them. Uh, and uh, um, a couple of them are actually from a writer who's putting together an article. And the rest are from uh, people like yourself who are uh, trying to get this right. And a lot of them, by the way, uh, whether it's the writer or the uh, investors are focused on uh, on internationals and and, uh, and and how we should be deciding what our commitment to the international markets should be. So here's the first one. Do you think it's a good idea to be invested in domestic and international REITs? Is this dragging down the likely long-term return too much? Now, first of all, let's remember that every asset class that we have recommended has a history of giving a very good unit of return per unit of risk. Again, always about the long-term. They have all had terrible periods of performance, even the S and P 500, that so many people rely on, had a ten-year period that it lost money, uh, almost one percent a year in the compound rate of return, and that's before inflation. So, so they all have periods where you wish you didn't own them. Now, REITs, real estate, commercial, whether it's apartment houses or office buildings or warehouses, whatever it might be. That might not seem like a great growth area, but interestingly enough, over the length of history that we have on REITs, the rates of return are very similar to the S&P 500, which for most people is considered to be a fine compound rate of return. Now, it might seem like, well, there's why. what's the reason to own the REITs if you're going to get the same return as the S&P 500? And it has been just a little higher than the S&P, but not enough to count on it being. But it tends to go up and down at very different times. And, uh, and so we're always looking for asset classes that that don't all move together, and REITs are certainly uh, one of those asset classes. And as far as the question about domestic uh, or international, I think it's just fine if you 
put 10% of your equity portfolio in U.S. REITs, or if you put 5% in U.S. and 5% in international, I think either will be fine. But you know how we have seen in this year that the the currency differences have favored the internationals over the U.S., and so you will have that advantage. But I would believe that whether you do it 5% in each or 10% in the U.S., I think you'll be fine in either case, but we do encourage people to diversify as massively as they can as long as we don't think that we're going to lose the steam of the return we're looking for. So I would say it's it's great to have them both. Uh, number two, should our REIT investment percentages change if we purchase property in the future? Now, to begin with, I'm assuming the property you're speaking of would be residential property. But uh, my answer would actually probably be the same whether it was residential or commercial because the beauty of, for example, a, a, a REIT index like Vanguard is that you're going to have all sorts of commercial properties in most of the major metropolitan areas uh, in the country. And so uh, that really is very different than having uh, money in your own home in a particular city. So I, I don't think they have anything to do with each other. Now, if you were uh, investing in commercial properties, uh, then you might think, well, I don't need any more exposure to real estate. Uh, uh, again, most people would not have a heavily diversified uh, position in commercial properties. Most people would have a home bias. For one thing, it's easier to manage apartment houses if, if, you, uh, if you live in that particular locale. So um, I, I, I think for most people, just see the REIT as another asset class that is uh, expected to be dependable in terms of returns and not always act like the other major asset classes in the portfolio. Uh, number three. Uh, I do get a lot of questions about bonds, and I suspect maybe what I should do is just devote one podcast to halt bonds. But uh, how much how much should we have in bonds right now? That's what the question is right now. Well, first of all, um, I don't think in terms for the majority of people of bonds as a market timing security. Now, in fact, for people who use the kind of market timing that I use for a portion of my own portfolio, uh, would, if they followed my advice when I was an advisor uh, uh, before I retired in 2012, uh, they might have some long-term bonds in the portfolio plus market timing. That would include high yield, high grade, U.S., international, uh, but when it comes to buy and hold, uh, we don't recommend long-term. We don't recommend uh, high yield um, because what you're looking for for the buy and hold strategy is, uh, is a matter of 
stability. And the best stability comes from short to intermediate. And if you are in a tax-deferred account, uh, they, it should probably be U.S. Uh, bonds, uh, government bonds. And that is because that is when we have a rush to quality uh, people in kind of catastrophic moments like October 19th, 1987, or uh, the huge sell-off in 2008 uh, and in 2009. The, even corporates got hit, but governments uh, did okay. So the question then is, how much in bonds right now? Well, if you're trying to build your own... Uh, target date portfolio, if you will. And maybe we don't normally think of our savings as being part of a target date portfolio because we don't have a glide path. If you bought a target date fund, you would have a built-in glide path. But few people have ever thought to put together their own personal glide path. Uh, and if you did, you'd want to, to give consideration, well, when do I start adding bonds? When you're 25, when you're 30, well, if you look at our glide path, we start adding bonds at age 35, but very, very little. And, uh, and so how much you should be in right now, if you're a buy and holder, would depend on where you are in your glide path. And the way that glide path, in theory, is being built is based on how much you're willing to lose in a big bear market. And of course, when you're young, you're in your 20s, your early 30s, a big bear market is actually an advantage in terms of putting money to work at lower prices. Now, at some point in your investing career, you start to moderate that position and you start defending more and more because the advantages of big declining markets is not as great as it was when you were when you were younger so it's really a question where you are in your in your glide path and also let's say you're retired if you're retired you have to ask the question how much am i willing to lose of my life savings and still take advantage of the long-term profits of, of growth securities, uh, you might not want to have much risk in terms of downside. My wife and I have 50% in bonds and 50% in stocks, in the, uh, and I'm talking about funds, uh, index funds, uh, in my case, uh, using DFA funds. But uh, the point is, is that... Uh, we don't want any more risk than to lose somewhere between 20 and 25% of our portfolio. Uh, and for those who don't want to be exposed to that, you should even have more bonds. So if somebody wanted to use a tool to determine how much they should be in bonds at whatever age you are, you might look at my fine-tuning table where it shows what the exposure to risk is, risk of loss, uh, with different amounts of fixed income in the portfolio. And you can find that table, or a, a whole bunch of tables like it, for different kinds of investments uh, under 
the best advice link on the home page at uh, paulmerriman.com. And here's an, an interesting question uh, about bonds, and that is, what percentages and where should these percentages come from in our asset allocation? Now, again, I could say, see the glide path, or and figure out what your own glide path is going to be. But let's say that you decided to build a portfolio that was very simple, 10% each. Well, maybe not so simple to some of you, but at least theoretically simple. 10% each to large cap blend and small cap blend and large cap value and small cap value and REITs, and those would all be U.S., and then 10% also in international large cap blend, international large cap value, and international small cap blend and value, and then finally emerging markets. Everything's 10%. And then let's say that your first position in bonds is going to mean you're going to go to a 10% position, and that means 90% left in equities. Well, to keep it simple, uh, I would think that uh, it should then be 9% in each of those equity asset classes instead of 10. Now, I suppose you could, uh, you could be more aggressive than that, and you could pick five asset classes that are relatively uh, less risky. For example, you might take some money out of the S&P 500 and the large cap uh, international blend. Uh, uh, and then you might also take out um, a little more from large cap U.S. value and international U.S. value so that you would end up in with uh, still having 10% in small cap blend and small cap value U.S. international, 10% in emerging markets so that you could as you transition to bonds, you could take more out of the uh, higher quality stocks and leave those more productive, more aggressive, smaller um, cap and value asset classes. So you could do that, but that's getting complicated, and we're trying to. It's, it's for many, it's already complicated enough using so many different asset classes. But that could be done. And it, it wouldn't be a crazy thing to do. Um, it, it would simply mean that you're taking less risk in a way at the same time as you're upping the risk by having more percentage-wise in the more aggressive asset classes. So then uh, number six, and this is a question that I get in some, uh, in many different ways because it typically has a particular asset class uh, attached to it. Somebody would typically ask, um, what about asset classes like commodities or gold? Uh, or typically it's going to be healthcare, which has been such a great uh, sector uh, over the last uh, uh, 25 years. So uh, why not have those asset classes uh, in the portfolio. And I mean, could you do that? Yes, you could. In fact, let's say you wanted gold and you wanted commodities and you wanted uh, health care. 
You could take 10% of the portfolio and do that. But the fact is you have health care in the portfolio without doing that. And you have gold in the portfolio without doing that. You will have mining companies who might, uh, or organizations that uh, create uh, commodities, but you wouldn't likely have the commodities uh, themselves except as the processing of, that companies do with those commodities, uh, adding value. Uh, I think it's generally felt that the reason you might have commodities or gold in the portfolio uh, is because those are asset classes that don't go up and down uh, with the market. And keep in mind that bonds don't go up and down with the market, and yet long-term and intermediate-term bonds uh, have had better long-term rates of return uh, than uh, gold and these other commodities. Now, of course, healthcare is a whole different thing. That is an asset class that uh, is expected to do better than uh, government bonds. Uh, but again, it is built into uh, the indexes that we recommend people own. Uh, number seven, um, do you think we understand the risk we're taking with our asset allocation and that we'll be able to hold the course when the times get rough. Um, no, I, I, I'm not as hopeful as I would like to be that people understand the risk we're taking. I think when somebody looks at a page of my numbers, uh, and they decide, hey, I think 50-50 sounds good. Let me see mm, how much I would have made. That's kind of the first thing we want to look at. How much would we have made had we done what Merriman is recommending here? Ah, 9% compound rate of return. Well, I like that number, and I think I feel comfortable with a 50-50 strategy. But how would it feel... Uh, if you lost 25% of your money in, in basically a year, that, that could happen. Uh, in fact, it is likely to happen again. Just kind of depends on how long you live. But I am sure a 50-50 strategy will end up um, representing a, um, a major bear market in the, in the coming decades. And, and so... Um, would it not also be important where you are in, in, in along the way? If you are in retirement, let's say you were 50-50 when you were 55, and now at 65 you're retired, uh, yes, you had the risk tolerance of losing a lot of money, what I would call a lot of money, 25% of your savings, while you were still working. But now you're not working anymore. And um, it will be horrible if what happens is you get exposed to this much larger risk than you really were expecting and, and no way to recover because you're no longer working. I think that needs to be thought through. And it's one of the reasons that I try to convince people that 
even if they only work with an advisor for one year, that it, it would really be good to have somebody look at what you're doing to make sure that all the red flags have been waved uh, so you're prepared for the bad times when they come. Um, number eight, question number eight. Um, what assets, in fact, this is how they phrased it. If you were managing our portfolio, what assets would you invest less in and what asset classes would you invest more in? Now, I get this question in one form or another several times a week. People send me their portfolio and want me to comment. And first of all, I'm not an investment advisor. I don't understand everything about you that I would need to understand. And the one thing I don't know for sure is what your tax situation is. And that doesn't mean I want you to send me both your investments and your cost basis so I can analyze that because I'm not allowed to do that. And I honestly don't have time to do that. But understand that to the extent that I have recommended certain asset classes, that basically means that I don't recommend others, that there's a reason why, as I just explained a few minutes ago, that I don't have gold. There's a reason why I don't recommend commodities. But very often, you will ask me about uh, an ETF or a fund that represents something that is similar to what I recommend. It might be a, a big old dividend fund or a, a mega cap uh, ETF that basically is a large cap value or large cap blend. So if you want to know whether or not I would support your selection, you might dig a little deeper at Morningstar, look at that ETF, what asset class does it represent? And let's say it represents large cap value. All right, that's great. Does it represent large cap value with a lot of turnover? Well, you got to look at Morningstar and find out how much turnover it has. Because if it's large cap value, and that's good, but it's actively managed, I'm thinking that's bad. Now, if you bought it 20 years ago and you've got a big capital gain buildup in there, well, it might not make sense to sell it, except the fact is, is most capital gains get distributed along the way in actively managed funds. So oftentimes, people don't have a huge long-term capital gain built in there. Or let's say you also look at the expenses and you see the expenses are 1%, but I'm recommending a fund that does a similar thing that has an expense ratio of one-tenth or 15 one-hundredths of 1%. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why I would like or dislike a certain fund or ETF. The first is the asset class, and the second would have to do with all those things like turnover and expenses and how many stocks they own. Somebody recently asked me about a fund that had about 100 companies in it, and the fund that I recommend 
has you know 2,000 stocks in it. And so the one that had 100 had a slightly higher return. Well, that's this, certainly no surprise there when you have fewer stocks and you have a period that you've picked the right ones. Now, we can argue whether that was because of brilliance or because of luck. <coughs> Excuse me. But, but you get the idea that there's a bunch of these variables that are pushing and pulling on your portfolio. And in many cases, I think, boy, the, the best hope I have of getting somebody to do the right thing is, is to get somebody who's sitting on a bunch of cash and trying to figure out how to do this because it's difficult to give up on investments that you've made in the past. I've seen people who were sitting on investments that they've had since the days of the tech wreck. And they're still waiting to get the kind of return they expected back there at that time. And so when I suggest they consider moving out of that and maybe going to some small cap value if you're looking to be aggressive, uh, that's a huge jump. And they just know in their heart of hearts the minute, the minute that they sell that that thing that has been bothering them for 15 years, that uh, it's going to take off without them. Uh, I certainly understand that concern. By the way, there is one more thing about investing less in, uh, in, in something that one might have. The most common invest more or less question that comes to my mind is when an investor has made the decision to follow the path of cap-weighted portfolios. And that would be an investor who has, as an example, somebody who has uh, decided to follow the total market indexes at Vanguard and having, let's say, half their money in the U.S. total market and half their money in the international total market. And what I think that you need less of in that portfolio, you need less large-cap growth. Because cap weighting is going to way overweight your portfolio to the very largest companies, to the more growth-oriented companies. Remember how you get to be called large. You get to be called large when you have let's say, a million shares outstanding, it would be more than that, but just as an example, a million shares outstanding, and people think that you are an amazing company into the future, a great growth company. And so maybe you're selling for 20 or 30 or 40 times earnings. So let's say that for the sake of discussion, you make a dollar, it means you're selling at $40. And so your million shares converts to a $40 million company. Another company could have a million shares out, could have a dollar in earnings, but it's a lazy old industry. It's a, maybe it's a it's a okay profitability wise, but it doesn't have the the potential of the one that's forty times earnings. It is ten times earnings for its dollar. So now it's a ten million dollar company. Now they they're making the same amount of money, but the one that is viewed as having a amazing future 
and people are willing to pay up for it to be part of it, it's selling for four times the value of the more stable, maybe more mature company that makes the dollar. So at the end of the day, if you put together a portfolio uh, that is growth-oriented, you're going to have a lot of these very, very popular companies that are on the cutting edge of whatever the world thinks looks great. Whereas the smaller companies or the more deeply discounted value companies, when you figure out you multiply the number of shares times the market price, it doesn't come up anywhere close to what those really great companies come up to. So I would be saying if I wanted less, I I actually want less of those great companies. Remember, those great companies are recognized by the world as great companies It's not like you found something that nobody else knows about, and it's built into those prices of the 40 times earnings. Now, it could be 20 times earnings, but you got the picture. And what do we know about those companies? Well, we know the Nifty 50. Those were the kind of companies that were very popular back in uh, the early 70s. And the idea was you buy all 50 of these companies, put them away, and you'll have the money you need in another day when you are going to retire. Just take some stock out of the lockbox and sell a few shares, and you'll be in great shape. Well, it turned out those amazing nifty 50 stocks turned out to produce returns that were less than the S&P 500. At the same time, it's confusing, I know, The companies that weren't so hot, that weren't identified as being the great place to invest, that didn't make the nifty 50 list, those companies as a group did better, made more money than the S&P 500. And in fact, I I haven't done this. I could, just out of curiosity, I could look at from 1972 to, uh, to... 2016, the S&P 500 compounded at 10.4. And you remember, the Nifty 50 came in a little bit behind them. On the other hand, let me look at U.S. small cap value from 1972 to 2016, and it's a 16% compound rate of return. So uh, I would have less of those big, big companies, those very popular growth companies, and I'd have more of smaller. That's what I'd be doing less and more of. I probably would have more international than most of you do. Um, Probably I may have more emerging markets. And um, I think because I have bonds to address my my, uh, risk tolerance, my wife, we agree on, this combination, I think another thing we have more of would be sleep. <laughs> because you always, when you get to be in your 70s, you'd like to be able to invest in a way that that makes you happy today, makes your family happy later, and that you sleep easy. These last few questions uh, come from um, a, uh, a writer who was working on an article for uh, one of the largest fund companies in the country. In fact, 
I was kind of interested uh, to to be contacted by them because uh, a lot of the things that I believe uh, are not represented by the, by the fun family that's asking me to uh, give my opinion. So I'll I'll be interested to see whether I'm left on the cutting room floor. Question number nine. U.S. investors tend to have a home bias. Can you point me to data that shows this to be the case? And why do U.S. investors tend to favor domestic funds? Well, it is, it is one of the fascinating parts about uh, investing. Um, and, and I... And I remember, I think I commented on this last week, how the folks at the AAI conference that I went to hear speak, how all of them noted that the, that the emotions of investors, that is the, the biggest enemy of investors, is their own emotions. And this home bias is an example of those emotions. And if you think about it, the person who, uh, who, who believes in the advice that I think Peter Lynch gave, and that is to uh, only invest in things you understand, uh, or go to, I think he said, go to the mall and find companies whose stores seem to be doing well. Uh, it's, it's also represented by, remember the Enron employees who had all of their of their retirement in Enron stock. And the same thing happened at WAMU, Washington Mutual. A lot of people who ended up losing all of their savings, it was because they had a home bias, which is basically the same problem uh, as um, we we have as as a country, as investors. We tend to want to invest in the country that we know the best. And uh, there is a lot of data on this. The, uh, I, I found one. Now, this is several years old, uh, and it had to do with uh, Europe, basically, although it did talk, too, about the U.S. and Japan. But basically, it says that U.S. investors place 98% of their equity portfolios in domestic equities. I suspect today it's not that high. I think this was done about 10 years ago. Uh, in the UK, it's about 78%. Uh, and by the way, in the US at this point, it should have been about 36% in US equities if, if it were based on cap weighting. In other words, the US, uh, and, and today because the US market went up a lot uh, over the last 10 years, I suspect that it's closer to 50%, maybe a little more than 50%. But uh, at this point, it was it was thirty six. The UK uh, was about ten percent of the market, and yet UK investors had seventy eight percent in their own country. Uh, and this is a this is a killer one. Eighty six, almost eighty seven percent of investments in the Japanese market uh, are from their uh, own Japanese investors. They have most of their money, 86% of it, in Japanese stocks, and uh, whereas it should be about 43%. Turns out, when they looked at uh, all the rest of the European c- 
countries that even though they only on average represented about 1.9% of the world, uh, each one of them, of the world uh, market values, uh, and each, the average was about 85% in their own countries. And, and the reason this is, can be so costly uh, is because, like in the case of Japan, where uh, the market literally lost, went from 40,000 uh, down to under 10,000. Uh, and this follows a point that virtually everybody in the world uh, thought that Japan was going to be number one uh, economically, that in fact we had people in the United States who were really worried uh, that there would be, uh, they'd be changing names of streets to Japanese names because they were, they were buying so much of America at the time. Well, I don't know that they really bought a lot of it, but enough that it gave people a sense that, that uh, a, lo a lot of it was going to be owned uh, by the, the Japanese. I think one big one was Rockefeller Center uh, was uh, purchased by a Japanese company. So what do we know about the Japanese investors who relied on their own home bias? They got wiped out. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, not only did they get wiped out in the stock market, but real estate uh, values plummeted. And and uh, why do we why do we do this? Because it's something that that we have a sense we can trust. Uh, in fact, a lot of people think that uh, uh, business people in foreign countries are more crooked than business people in the United States. Uh, I don't know. Um, it, 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 it may be uh, that that is a problem, but uh, trust me, we, we, there's some evidence that we have terrible problems in our own country uh, and that uh, we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't necessarily trust anyone too much. By the way, isn't that what diversification is all about? is not trusting either your own knowledge or the knowledge of others or the honesty of others. So we don't put all of our money or shouldn't put it all in one company. Human nature at work. Remember, our own emotions, that's the biggest enemy of successful investing. Question number 10 uh, this is, too, uh, about international versus U.S., and the question here is that uh, U.S. companies, particularly large ones, have become increasingly multinational, and is an investor uh, getting sufficient exposure to international markets by simply investing in these large U.S. companies? Well, actually, if you are a cap-weighted investor, that might be the case. It may be not necessary to own both a total market index in the U.S. and a total market index internationally, as what you're going to end up with basically is a pile-high list of companies that are basically are, are mostly large growth, very large growth companies. But if we want to get this exposure to small and to value, 
You're not going to get that with big, large companies, particularly large growth. Uh, and so it, it, it is probably the case that to get that premium uh, that you should get from small and value, you're going to want to diversify as broadly as you can and you're not going to, typically the very small, the smaller companies are not going to be as multinational as the large companies. So you want to really get great diversification in small cap value and small cap blend. Get it in the U.S. and international markets. Emerging markets, you're not going to get uh, that exposure in the uh, multinationals. Number 11. What might be the best balance of U.S. and international and emerging market funds? Well, we've struggled with that, um, Chris Patterson and myself, and um, Daryl Balls, the, the three guys who are here trying to help you put together better and better portfolios. And here's the Here's the challenge. We know that if we put too much international into the portfolio, that when internationals grossly underperform the U.S., you're going to have a tendency to, uh, to jump ship and be looking for a better way because you're not doing as well as your neighbor who has all of their money in the S&P 500. Turns out, if you have 30% of your money uh, in internationals, you pick up almost all of the advantages of internationals in terms of giving you a bump during periods that they have a currency advantage. And, uh, and so when we put together our target date funds, thinking, all right, We've got to build these so that people can, in fact, hold them for a lifetime. That's the whole idea. And so we compromised a little, took a little of the, of the uh, spice out of the recipe, and changed it to 30%. In the hopes that they would get the advantage of the added diversification, the additional small cap value, the additional... A large cap value from the international markets, the addition of the emerging markets, and uh, bring in during those periods that the U.S. market is outperforming, bring the portfolio's return closer to that of an all-U.S. portfolio. And there's a, some level at which I, I, it disgusts me that. I'm not doing everything I can to, uh, um, to, to, to squeeze out that last penny. But I think it will be fine, and I think it will give greater peace of mind. And um, Chris and I have even talked about the possibility of not having just this, the 70-30 target date portfolio that we have right now, but also to offer the uh, 50-50. We'll see. Well, we'll see what kind of feedback we get uh, from our investors. Before I leave this decision about how much international, let me give you the numbers from our fine-tuning tables that uh, you can find 
uh, under best advice uh, on the home page. If we look at the what we used to call, what we do call the ultimate buy and hold strategy, which is the equities that include big, small value growth, U.S. international REITs and emerging markets, everything's in there. 50-50 U.S. international compound rate of return, 11.4. Now that's as compared to the S&P 500 for that same period at 10.2. The 70-30 with the combination of all those asset classes uh, 70% U.S., 30% international, was 11.4. So, the same return, whether we were 50-50 or 70-30. Now, it's a little different when we look at the all-value portfolio. Remember, the all-value is combinations of U.S. and international, large-cap and small-cap value, along with some uh, value in the... Uh, uh, emerging markets. And that showed uh, with the 50-50, 12.1, and with the 70-30, 70% U.S., 30% international, all value, all the time, uh, 12.5. So 12.1 versus 12.5. And a final uh, question here in this podcast, number 12, what are the risks to consider when investing in emerging market funds and international funds? Well, this isn't going to shock you. Expenses, they can be very high in, in, with international funds, particularly the actively managed ones. But even the passively managed ones can be more expensive. And uh, so that is a, a, a legitimate risk. And if you buy a fund with high expenses and you hold it forever, that risk is going to be whacking away at your portfolio forever. So there would be that. There would also uh, be the consideration for diversification. Uh, many of the international funds uh, don't hold as they, they aren't in well, maybe it's the difference between indexing and active management again. Uh, I think it's a risk when you, uh, additional risk when you're uh, taking, hiring uh, active managers. There is no evidence. And in fact, I don't remember the, ex the, the difference here, but uh, the difference between the Templeton and the Vanguard uh, emerging market funds are. I think it's it's well over 1% difference in their compound rate of return. Um, sorry to be lazy and not go look it up, but but uh, that's a risk. Anytime you make less money than you should, uh, that's a risk. Now, the other thing is you have political risk. And um, uh, that uh, there are people who think we have political risk in our market. But certainly, international markets can, particularly emerging markets, you can have a political risk. And if you looked, uh, you would find out that the markets are priced for being uh, more risky. Uh, the uh, the P/E ratios, the the book to uh, market, uh, are um, much lower in the international markets 
than in the U.S. market. So that has been reflected. That additional risk is reflected in the pricing. And if it turns out all those countries are just fine, uh, then then you're likely to get a really nice premium for having taken that additional risk. But you are getting uh, the, uh, these, well, the price, the price to book on very similar total markets. We're talking about the total market, uh, U.S. and international. The price to book in the U.S. is 2.8, uh, and the price to book in the international, very similar size companies, uh, is 1.7. So you're getting a much greater discounted price uh, on the value with the international markets than uh, than in the U.S. So you're being, in theory, you're going to be paid for having taken that additional risk. Remember that where we find our stability is not in either the U.S. or the international stocks. We find our stability from the bonds we have in our in our portfolio. So as I say goodbye today, I I want to ask uh, each and every one of you to uh, pass my information along to others. We are continuing to broaden our list of uh, recommended uh, our recommendations on 401k plans. We now have the target date portfolios. And boy, do I get excited when I find out that some parents have just opened up the, uh, the 2000 uh, 85 portfolios for, in one case, four of their kids. So please do what you can to help us grow this thing to get to more people, and uh, we'll do all we can to help you find ways to grow your portfolio. So keep listening and keep sharing. Thank you very much. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.